Like many early mechanical devices, the first recorded wind-powered machines seem to have been built as toys or concepts for other seemingly more practical things or interesting oddities. Heron of Alexandria's 1st century AD wind-driven organ, for instance, is said to have been devised as a whimsical sort of plaything, rather than as a method of harnessing the power of wind for large-scale, arguably more impressive, feats. Other quite early uses of the wind as a power source include a variety of what are often called prayer wheels in modern-day Tibet and China. These prayer, or Mani wheels are rotated horizontally by the wind and are meant to symbolically accumulate good karma and eliminate bad karma for the bearer of the smaller portable versions and the visitors to the larger versions of these devices. The earliest economically productive windmills were also of the horizontal variety, were sometimes called panemone windmills and typically had blades or sails arranged vertically around a central rod, those blades or sails catching the wind, rotating the rod in a vertical, cylindrical motion. That rod would be attached to an axle, which would be attached to a mechanism that would channel the captured wind power into manual labor, often some kind of grain grinder work that would otherwise be quite tedious and physically intensive, but which could be done pretty much all day by the wind if the mill was built correctly and kept in good repair. These horizontal windmills, despite being the least efficient in terms of labor power output generated per unit of wind power available, is one of the most geographically widespread and commonly reinvented across time and space, Many cultures around the world came up with their own versions of it at some point in their history, and we have archaeological evidence of such windmills from as far back as the 7th century AD, and they remained, as far as we know at least, the only real option in terms of wind-capturing setups until the 12th century, when so-called vertical windmills, the kind that have their blades, their sails, arranged more like a flower, fanning out from one face of a building or tower, were developed and then began to be widely deployed around northwestern Europe, mostly in France, England, and Flanders, but eventually, in relatively short order, as these kinds of things go, at least at that point in history, throughout the rest of the continent, and then throughout the world as well. Most of these early vertical windmills were used to grind up cereals, not unlike those earlier productive horizontal windmills. The side of the building or tower where the blades were mounted would face the wind. The blades would spin the axle, and that axle would apply force to the mechanism that ground up the bran or grains or whatever else needed grinding so that it could then be processed into meal or flour for food. Even the earliest post-mill-style vertical windmill was several times more powerful than the horizontal mill type. But that basic model was evolved over the years as well, with innovations to the post, the axle, and the blades, but also to the overall setup 
with some windmills able to adjust their directionality, which way they faced as the wind changed, to ensure that they were always facing the optimal direction, while others gained more or fewer blades, blades made of different materials like sailcloth, the kind used as sails on ships to capture the wind, while others gained clever mechanisms that allowed those operating the mills to adjust the amount of wind they would capture, depending on the amount of torque desired, the potency of the weather that they were facing, and so on. The general windmill concept was also used from at least the 9th century AD onward, in what we would today call the Middle East, and eventually spreading into what is today China and India, in a building-scale mechanism called a wind pump. While a windmill would be primarily used for milling different sorts of cereals, depending on what was available and a key part of the diet in the region in which they were built, a wind pump was primarily used to pump water, utilizing roughly the same overall concept, capturing wind and converting it into practical power. But instead of channeling that energy into milling machinery, the wind was used to either power a wheel with buckets attached in such a way that they would dip down into the water and scoop it out, pouring that collected water elsewhere before circling back around to scoop out more, or later to drive a sort of piston system that would pump water out using pressure created by that captured wind power. This design was eventually utilized elsewhere as well, becoming especially popular in the Netherlands and other regions that dealt with regular flooding and swampy areas that they wanted to drain and clear for living or agricultural purposes. Both windmills and wind pumps are still used today, with the same basic mechanics in place, but often with far better components and generally with many smaller blades instead of just four or around four large ones. They are also typically far lighter weight and smaller these days because of the efficiencies that come with building them from lightweight metals rather than wood, iron, and clay. What I'd like to talk about today is the technological descendant of windmills and wind pumps, the wind turbine and what role this family of technologies is playing in the global renewable energy push, and especially how it is being used to generate electricity from the wind offshore. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled Biden Targets Big Offshore Wind Power Expansion to Fight Climate Change. This piece centers around a recent announcement by the U.S. Biden administration regarding their intent to expand the country's offshore wind energy capacity substantially primarily through regulatory adjustments, the opening up of new areas that might be suitable for such projects, speeding up the permit process for this industry, and by increasing the amount of money available for wind energy projects in the coming years. They also announced that as part of this larger effort, they are in the process of approving a quite large wind farm off the coast of New Jersey in the northeastern portion of the United States. 
This New Jersey wind farm called Ocean Wind, if approved, would be located about 15 miles off the coast of the southern part of the state, would produce about 1,100 megawatts of electricity, which is enough to power about 500,000 homes, and would likely be just the first of such projects in that region. The government is already in the process of conducting environmental reviews for wind farms called Vineyard Wind and South Fork near Massachusetts and about 35 miles out from Montauk Point, New York, respectively. The former expected to produce a bit less than the New Jersey wind farm, coming in at around 800 megawatts compared to 1,100, while the New York one would be expected to produce substantially less about 132 megawatts. There are, as of this announcement at least, around 16 offshore wind projects progressing through various stages of the exploration and approval process along the eastern U.S. coast alone. And while a few of these are planning to be operational by 2022 and 2023, most of them would begin operations sometime between 2023 and 2022. 30. And 2030 is an important date for this administration, as they vowed to double offshore wind production in the U.S. by that year, which is a decently high bar to leap, because the U.S. is behind other international entities, like the European Union and the U.K., when it comes to this particular energy source, offshore wind power. There are a couple of small wind farms in operation off the coast of Rhode Island and another outside Virginia. These produce about 30 and 12 megawatts of electricity, respectively. Again, compared to 1,100 megawatts for that newly announced wind farm outside of New Jersey. But it's actually fairly remarkable that they were built in the first place, as the previous U.S. administration was not a fan of wind power even going so far as to call the turbines ugly eyesores that killed birds, repeating some of the most popular criticisms of fossil fuel industry lobbying groups when wind turbines of any kind are brought up. To be clear, those criticisms are not 100% wrong. Some birds are killed by the most common wind turbine design, and not everyone likes the look of these things. They are big and obtrusive, and they definitely stand out on an otherwise natural horizon line. But research conducted in 2009 has shown that although there are about 0.3 to 0.4 bird fatalities for every gigawatt hour of energy produced by a wind farm, which is a way of illustrating the relative size of the wind farm, Fossil fuel-driven power stations, which are typically the only serious alternative for producing energy in the relevant areas, cause about 5.2 fatalities per gigawatt hour, so substantially more deaths to birds. It's worth mentioning, at least in part because this is a weird data point that I'm glad I'm now aware of, for every bird killed by a wind turbine in the United States in 2009, 500,000 birds were killed by cats, and another 500,000 were killed by buildings, typically by slamming into buildings. So while these turbines are not unobtrusive, and while they do lead to some bird deaths each year, 
Compared to the alternatives, they're actually pretty good. And I would argue that applies to their aesthetic value as well, compared to fossil fuel burning power plants. And the newer model turbines, of a kind that use slightly different shaped blades or have designs printed on the blades that dissuade birds from coming too close, will reportedly show even better bird-related data the next time all those numbers are collected and presented in formal research paper form. Though those blade shape changes and printed designs probably will not do much to allay the concerns of those who simply don't like the look of these building-sized fans. Let's talk a bit more about wind turbines and what they actually are before getting more into the weeds about this policy shift and the offshore application of turbines in particular. While a windmill converts wind into mechanical energy, often for milling purposes, and a wind pump converts wind into mechanical water pumping action of some kind, a wind turbine converts wind energy into electrical energy. The theoretical maximum efficiency of a wind turbine is about 59.3%, so the total amount of power arriving in wind form will be decreased by some amount due to imperfections in the design, friction caused by dust or bug corpses clogging up the mechanical components, or the wind just not arriving in a form that is perfect for conversion. In most cases, the efficiency will actually be quite a bit less than 59.3%, and will decrease even further from there due to inefficiencies in the electrical generation and transportation systems. Loss due to heat, due to worn cables or old converters, things like that. That said, even as far back as the early 2000s, the then-standard model turbines were at times achieving 75-80% to 80 of that theoretical maximum turbine-based electrical generation efficiency. So despite all the caveats and flaws, we were already, 20 years ago, doing pretty well when it came to the fundamental act of capturing the wind's energy using this technology and then turning it into electricity. Many older, smaller, form-factor wind turbines are horizontal, a throwback to those ancient designs, in part because they are easier to build in higher-density areas, and in part because there are more available bladeless designs, which makes them a little less obtrusive for some use cases, and allows them to be built on electrical poles and alongside streetlights and on the sides of buildings. Most newer, large-scale wind turbine models are of the vertical variety. And these are the kinds that you probably have seen if you've ever seen a wind farm, offshore or on land, in a field somewhere, as these tend to scale up much better. They produce more energy at greater sizes, and consequently, they are the usual choice for these massive wind energy installations. Many of the newer model turbines have three blades, as this tends to reduce what's called torque ripple making the whole system more reliable and less likely to break as the forces involved deviate from the expected norm. And most modern turbines of all designs and sizes have built-in monitoring and diagnostic equipment which allows those who maintain them to keep tabs on all the moving pieces so that they know when something is busted and increasingly before 
something breaks, so they can handle any issues with strain and balance before anything goes wrong. Most of the blade components of these turbines are built to last for about 20 to 25 years before needing to be replaced. The one increasingly common method of getting more energy output from these same turbines is to swap out older, shorter blades for newer, longer ones, which requires harder blade materials, but it can increase the lifespan of the underlying turbine infrastructure substantially. Almost like replacing the tires on your car increases the lifespan of the car substantially. Before we were able to do this with turbines, if we stick with that same analogy, they'd basically just replace the whole car when the tires went bad. And in this case, not only can you replace the tires to keep the rest of the machine going, you can get increasingly high performance out of the car, the turbine, as a consequence of using upgraded tires, longer blades. So every 20 to 25 years or so, these turbines can be granted essentially a brand new lifespan. But they can also, at those replacement periods or whenever, have those blades replaced with longer blades to increase the amount of energy they generate. Data from 2019 indicates that wind turbines on average cost about $1 million per megawatt they generate. And remember, some existing U.S. offshore wind farms produce dozens of megawatts of electricity today. And the new one that is in the works for off the New Jersey coast is expected to produce 1,100 megawatts. And the plan announced by the Biden administration includes a target of 30 gigawatts, which is 30,000 megawatts of offshore wind energy alone. So that's not including wind energy produced on land. And all of that by 2030. That number, 30 gigawatts of offshore power, would be enough to power 10 million homes and would cut 78 million metric tons of carbon dioxide that would otherwise be produced for energy in the U.S. each year. Most of the highest potential sites for offshore wind energy around the United States are in the northeastern portion of the country and from about northern California up to northern Oregon on the west coast. It's estimated that if the U.S. built out infrastructure to take advantage of these highest potential areas, the country could produce about 20% of its total electrical power using offshore turbines, and that could theoretically be accomplished by 2030, which would be pretty impressive considering only 8.42% of all power in the U.S. is currently generated by all types of wind power and most of that from wind farms built on land throughout the country. Only around a fifth of that 8.42%, depending on what you choose to measure and how you choose to measure it, currently comes from offshore wind. This is by many measures a huge opportunity to expound upon a currently tiny, but potentially quite potent and clean energy source. And it's one that's already being utilized to great effect elsewhere. Though, global offshore capacity is still only about 23.1 gigawatts, and most of those turbines are in the UK or Germany. They account for something like two-thirds of global offshore capacity, and the UK, as of 2020, has the largest offshore installation in the world, which weighs in at 1.2 gigawatts, which for comparison's sake 
is just a little more than the 1.1 gigawatts that the aforementioned New Jersey offshore wind farm will supposedly generate. Part of what has allowed onshore wind power to grow so much faster than offshore is that traditionally, it's been far more expensive to build offshore turbines, in part because it's simply not easy to build turbines that big that will also remain stable off the coast in the ocean. Getting that energy from those offshore sites back to land is also no small feat, and maintaining that type of infrastructure is also typically quite a bit more involved than the maintenance on turbines located on land, within driving rather than boating distance. We also just have far less experience building offshore turbines. The first offshore wind farm was built in 1991 off the coast of Denmark, and though expansion has been relatively swift, it's still nowhere near as developed as some other energy production methods that we have at our disposal, which means there is probably a lot more accessible and rapid growth potential in this space than for many other renewable energy options that are further along. But it also means more investment will likely be required up front to achieve those gains. That said, prices on offshore wind investments have already dropped substantially since the early days of this technology. 2020 wind farm building costs were actually lower than the lowest estimates made in 2015 for what they believed such infrastructure would cost in 2050. Meaning, prices have dropped a whole lot in a very short period of time, to the point where we are hitting price levels that they expected us to maybe, possibly hit 30 years from now, when they were making estimations about such things less than a decade ago. But this energy source can still be a tough sell, in part because of the regulatory environment such projects face in most countries, which tends to be pretty stern when compared to other more common types of energy infrastructure they might choose to build instead, and in part because many people are justifiably concerned about what such installations might mean for local ecosystems. And that includes folks from the fishing industry who worry, first, that they will no longer be able to fish within a radius around these turbines because of safety, and governmental exclusion zones that might go into effect. And second, they worry that these turbines might just drive fish away from these easily accessed waters. Thankfully, it looks like these turbines are actually fairly friendly in terms of their overall environmental impact, even compared to their on-land kin. They also cause less harm in terms of environmental noise, and don't bother folks who find them to be ugly, at least not to the same degree as land-based turbines, because they're often just quite far away from where humans live. They also seem, based on research that's been conducted so far at least, to serve as artificial reefs, which is a serious boon to some oceanic ecosystems, especially those that have seen reduced coral construction because of heightened oceanic acidity or because of invasive species. Basically, the bases of these turbines, which are built into the ocean floor, serve as pre-made homes for all kinds of ocean life, making it less costly for these creatures, biologically, to set up shop and create new ecosystems. 
And in some cases, these turbine installations have actually helped repair ailing ecosystems that were there before the turbines were installed, but already not doing great. The turbine structures helped the local flora and fauna rebuild by providing them with something like a scaffolding upon which they could then perch their community. Now this is not a slam dunk, as this tech is still relatively new, and we don't know the long-term effects of this building, and whether or not this reef benefit is universal. It'll almost certainly vary quite a bit depending on where you look, and we don't have enough data yet to say for certain whether these installations will ultimately be a net negative or net positive for the ecosystems involved across the board. Interestingly, it's also possible that we might someday build deep sea turbine installations, which would avoid some of the downsides of having these things built relatively close to land. But it also introduces the possibility of floating reef ecosystems, as these turbines would float instead of being stabilized in the traditional way, with the poles they're connected to buried in the ocean floor. And that, in fact, is the way that some of the offshore test models are being built currently. And it would seem that some of those floating test models are already providing that same type of scaffolding for ocean life, but up near the surface of the water, rather than down near the ocean floor. Which means that we could, incidentally, create giant floating reef systems for deep-sea creatures, rather than just coastline-adjacent ones if this approach ever goes into full production, which is pretty neat. In the meantime, though, existing approaches to offshore wind already represent a largely untapped clean energy opportunity that has been fairly well proven, and which, again, with more investment, would seem to offer substantial gains compared to other available options. For some countries more than others, obviously, but for those with coastal regions, and especially those with coastal regions with relatively predictable wind patterns, such wind farms could make up a solid chunk of a larger renewable energy portfolio. For the United States, this is arguably especially important because of how much of the world's pollution the country currently produces to generate electricity. Energy use is expected to keep growing worldwide, in part because of the industrialization of poorer countries, and because of the shift to different types of energy sources for the richer ones. So the more of that existing output we can replace with non-carbon-emitting alternatives in the next decade, the better, for multiple reasons. And that replacement will need to be varied because the wind isn't always blowing, and the sun isn't always shining. There's a lot of potential in battery storage for these types of inconsistent energy sources, but none of the primary alternatives, at the moment at least, serve as well standing alone, solo, as they do alongside other sources with different strengths, weaknesses, and ideal operating locations and cadences. So offshore wind will need to be paired with onshore wind with solar, with hydro, geothermal, almost certainly nuclear, and anything else that we can use to generate electricity without further adding to the problem for which we bear outsized responsibility. Whether a rapid deployment of this technology in the United States will be politically feasible is another question entirely, but in terms of the technologies required and the budget allocation necessary, there's a chance that this move by this administration could start the ball rolling on a substantial overhaul 
and by many metrics a substantial upgrade, to the country's energy backbone and systemic resiliency. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements by Sam Keen. This book is actually a lot more narrative than I would have expected in that it follows some very interesting characters and tells some very compelling historical tales, but it does so using the Periodic Table of the Elements as a framework. It goes through, chunk by chunk, all of these different elements and explains some of the histories of them and where the names came from and why this chart is set up in the way that it is. But in doing so, it explores a fairly boggling amount of history and some very interesting characters as well. I actually consider this book to be more of a history book than a science book, and the type of history book that is told through a series of vignettes much more than a dry recitation of facts and figures, though it does have a little bit of all of those things intermingled in what I found to be a very appealing and entertaining way. So if you like science, if you like history, if you just like interesting stories about often quite strange characters, consider picking up a copy of The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find my week daily news-focused newsletter at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.